Recently, I was talking to a newcomer here at Meadowbrook and uh, received a real affirmation, a significant affirmation from that person who said one thing that they had noticed very quickly at Meadowbrook, every time on Sunday morning, people hear how they can be saved. I hear about the gospel. And today, guess what we're talking about? We're talking about the gospel. Uh, it is the heart uh, for our new life in Christ and new way of living. And so we just come back to this over and over and over because it's the message of the Older Testament of Christ and the Newer Testament of Christ. So obviously we would do that. Now, one of the ways we express the gospel is through baptism. I was real excited to have the Sams be baptized today. We have another baptism scheduled for next Sunday as well. But let's just think about baptism because the church needs to hold high baptism. We, we need to recognize the significance of baptism. And when we fail to recognize the significance of baptism, then we diminish the gospel message. Baptism is essential to who we are in Christ. It's essential to who we are as a church. So I've got one point today in this message. Don't you dare think that it's going to be short. <laughs> one point and it is this. Baptism is a watery grave of judgment for which we are immersed in the death of Christ and from which we emerge victoriously to new life in him. It is who we are. We are dead in Christ and we are raised to newness of life in Christ. So let's go back to 1 Peter chapter 3. I'm going to focus on two verses today, verse 21 and 22. But in order to do that, we need to recapture the context. So let me go back to verse 18. And we'll just stop along the way and just be reminded of some great truths that we have already covered. Verse 18 of chapter 3 of 1 Peter. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So let's just take these phrases for a moment and consider them as we contemplate what God has to say for us today. And the first is this, that Christ suffered once for sins. So Christ Jesus died once paying the penalty of our sins. You say, well, what's the significance of once? Why is he making sure we understand that Christ died once? I'll tell you why. Because the Old Testament sacrificial system required sacrifices over and over and over. In fact, if you're insightful to that, you know beyond the sacrifices that are associated with the feasts and festivals, which every feast and festival of the Jews had sacrifices that went along with that. Besides the fact that you had daily morning and evening sacrifices, you had tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of sacrifices that were taking place throughout the year at any given time. And this was because this was how the people were making or God was atoning for the sins of the people. So God required repeated sacrifices through the law of Moses and he's doing multiple things there, three of which is this. He wanted the people to understand that there is a high cost to sin. And he wanted the people to recognize that there was a need for the shedding of innocent blood for those who are guilty. And he wants to lay that solid foundation in them. That that's a principle 
that would be ultimately fulfilled in Christ Jesus. And then third, he wanted them to recognize that these offerings were merely an atonement of sin. That is, it's a covering of sin. It doesn't rectify the sin. It doesn't eradicate the sin. It doesn't wash the sin. It just covers the sin until the time that the Messiah would come. And when Messiah came, he once and for all sacrificed himself and there was no need for any others. So when Peter says that Christ suffered also once for sins it's a big deal he's helping us to discover that Christ is the fulfillment of all that that was being pointed to in the Old Testament system but then notice the next phrase that Peter mentions in chapter 3 verse 18 the righteous one for the unrighteous now in case you let that kind of slip past let's just get a little grammatical for a moment the righteous one, singular, for the unrighteous, plural. So one man is making an atonement, a sacrifice for the rest of us. And of course, praise God that Jesus, his only begotten son, had no sin. Therefore, he had no debt for himself to pay. So he was the only one who could pay our debt in our stead. The righteous one died for the unrighteous. And he tells us why in the next phrase that he might bring us to God. So Jesus has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. How would we ever bring ourselves who are sinful into the presence of a holy God? So Jesus has accomplished for us what we could not. He brought us to God. And he did so by being put to death. The next phrase there. Jesus of course satisfies the the penalty of sin required by the law. And then he opened a way for us to have salvation by faith in him. Jesus brings us to God. Now sure, Christ Jesus dies on the cross revealing God's glory and his love for people. It was God showing his love for us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us according to Romans chapter 5. And he died in order to reveal and satisfy the justice of God. God put forth Jesus as the propitiation, that is the satisfaction of his just wrath against us. He put him forth to be received by faith. It was to show his righteousness. So Jesus dies on the cross, bringing us to God in a very specific way to Unto his death, but made alive in the spirit. That's the last phrase there in that verse 18. Though Jesus' body was dead for three days in that grave, his spirit was very much alive. In other words, men put to death the humanness of Jesus Christ, but the deity of Christ was for alive forever. He has always been alive from eternity past. He will always be alive in eternity future. And he has always been alive in his spirit. And as Hunter so well proclaimed to us those truths, he was making that victory known. Now, those are the doctrines of salvation that are in verse 18 that are just fundamental for us to understand what verse 21 and 22 is all about, where we're going to focus today. But look at verse 19 because it's important as well. Just building this foundation in the context so we understand the realities of our text for today. Verse 19 in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. So 
Though he's dead, he's made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Now, as I mentioned, Hunter has already unpacked this for us and he did a good job in doing so. There's a lot of discussion about this. A lot of ways people see this one. This is not one of those things that our salvation is hinged on. What happened when Jesus was alive in the spirit making this proclamation? Was he speaking to those demons who had been so prolific in the land bringing evil to the land that God had created? Was he talking about those who were rebellious against the commands of God and the offering of grace to enter into that ark and yet they thumb their nose at God and determine that they're not going to do that? Who is he talking about? Who is he talking to? Who is he declaring this great victory? I think both, but that's arguable. We'll ask him one day in the future and he'll tell us about that. I doubt we'll care much because he will be proclaiming his victory to us and we will be rejoicing in that as we see him face to face and we in our bodies that have been resurrected will be made like him I doubt that we're going to have too many questions. We're going to be in such marvel of the glory that is standing before us and now given to us in full. Man, what a day that will be. So, but Jesus is announcing this great victory. And that's, that's uh, pretty fascinating, but we don't want to get bogged down there. But as cool as it is to contemplate the victory in which Christ is proclaimed, it gives us greater encouragement of the impending death of our body, which is to come. So all the victory that Jesus was proclaiming makes a difference in how we live. That's the reason why we say we want to live well today and we want to die well in the future. Amen. And we do that by our faith in Jesus Christ who lived well and who died well. Died victoriously, lived victoriously and shares that with us. The main point of the passage is though... This rescue that God gave graciously to Noah. That's the thrust of the passage in verse 19. Jesus had forewarned through Noah, who was a, a preacher, a proclaimer, a proclamator, uh, a prophet. He had forewarned for 120 years of an impending judgment. 120 years. Jesus had been warning through his prophet Noah and yet there was this great rebelliousness in the land and everybody is going to die in that judgment except for eight people. Peter is just elevating those eight. It's Noah and his wife, Shem, Ham, and Japheth and their wives. That's eight people. The immediate family along with Noah. And they are saved as they enter into God's salvation, that ark, by faith. They are saved from the judgment that was impending. So I want you to listen, to care, listen carefully to this. Everybody, including Noah, deserved God's judgment. They were sinful. Now Genesis 6 says that when God looked upon the earth, he saw the wickedness of people and their sin nature was so great that every intention of their heart and their thoughts was given to evil. And the Lord regretted that he had made mankind and placed him on the earth. And so the Lord said, I will blot out Genesis 5, excuse me, verse chapter 6, verse 5 through 8. I will blight, blot out man in whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I'm sorry that I have made them. Man, what a place. 
God finds the sinfulness of people just given totally over to it. And in this passage, we get a sense of the depth of the sin nature that all of us are born with. We get a sense of our bent towards sin and our movement towards it, our longing for it. The rebelliousness that's in us. And then God came to a point in Genesis 6 where he says, no more. And he brings judgment to the land. And he says that the land will have a cataclysmic flood, a destruction that would be all over the, the face of the planet worldwide. And he would destroy all living and breathing things. And it would change everything forever, including the face of the planet. The very continents would shift in that. But then verse 8 of chapter 6 of Genesis, but Noah found favor. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Now that does not mean that Noah was sinless. It implies that Noah knew God and he knew the character of God, the character of truth and justice and mercy and love and grace. He knew those characteristics of God because he knew God personally. And he found favor with God, believing and trusting that God would protect him and provide a way out of judgment by his great grace and by his love. Noah finds favor. In verse 9 of that same chapter tells us that Noah is in a unique relationship with God, so much so that he's set apart from the others in the world. All the others are rebellious and rejecting, but Noah, who is still sinful, believes and trusts in God that he would provide for him in the day of judgment. That he would be the means of the salvation. And certainly he was. He gave the blueprint for the ark of salvation. And told Noah how to build it. Empowered him to do so. Gave him the skill and ability. And, and called all the animals to come. Two by two in their own kind. And he was the rescuer. No doubt. You may be asking, Randy, why, why are you reminding us of the flood and Noah? Because of verse 21 of 1 Peter chapter 3. Verse 21 brings us forward, thinking about Noah. Baptism corresponds to this. Have you thought about baptism being like Noah in the ark? Peter did. And that's what he's pointing out to us. Yes, Christ was victorious, and yes, he proclaimed that victory. But he's reminding us of Noah and the grace that God had extended to Noah and his family. And he says, baptism corresponds to this. So we need to stop and ensure that we understand the significance of baptism and how it relates to our salvation. Now, it corresponds obviously means something that is close, similarity, in similarity. It's something that it's like or the same as, an agreement of, almost exactly like it. So, Peter is saying that baptism is similar to what Noah and his family experienced in God's grace when they entered into that ark. For example, we know that Noah was saved by God's grace through faith for the Lord informed him of the judgment to come and he offered him the means by which he could be rescued and he called him to enter into that ark is that not what God does today there is an impending judgment that he has already proclaimed you already feel the weightedness whether you know Christ or not you felt the weightedness of that judgment of God and yet God makes the way of rescue and it's his own son Jesus is the ark for us today in which we will enter into and then he calls us to enter into you don't even have to ask him for 
he's calling you to enter into Christ Jesus, to be immersed in him, to be baptized in him. And so Peter says, baptism, it's real similar to the ark. It's real similar to what Noah and his family experienced in their salvation. Because they were saved by God's grace through faith. And what does Ephesians 2, 8, 9 say to us? But that we are saved by grace through faith. So Peter's making a connection here. He wants you to see it more than just water and going in, coming out. It's more than just this is the way that, that people demonstrate uh, their new life in Christ is way more. It's communicating the very essence of the gospel. Like all other people, we are rebellious and disobedient against God and his word. We have an inclination towards sin. We are sinners through and through the moment we are born. And although God promised to execute his justice against us, like floodwaters coming against us, he warned that there would be an impending judgment of fire to come. And that he would annihilate everything on this planet. Yet Jesus, in demonstration of God's love, is the ark of our salvation. And he calls us to enter into him by faith. For it's in that faith that we will be saved. So baptism illustrates for us salvation of faith in Jesus Christ. Now, go with me to chapter 3 verse 21, baptism, which corresponds to this, and now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Now, in case you're reading that section of scripture and you make a quick and wrong assumption that baptism is what actually saves you, Peter clarifies that to say, now baptism is, is good at removing dirt on the outside, but it is not going to clean the inside. If you're going to be baptized, and we have a number of people being baptized, always choose to be the first because it gets pretty murky on down the line. <laughs> So he's saying that this is not a removal of dirt or sinfulness from the inside. Instead, according to the apostle, baptism is an appeal to God for a good conscience. God, clean me from the inside. God, make me new on the inside. Make what was once bad, make it good. What was once marked with guilt, make it marked with righteousness and freedom in Jesus Christ. And baptism is that. So it's an appeal to God for a good conscience. It's, it's Peter's way of saying, ask God to forgive and remove your sins and give you a new heart. Ask him to do that. Man, what a difference that is from all the works-based religions, even in the name of Christianity, where people strive and climb and claw and creep their way to what they believe to be righteousness. What a difference that is. How about just if you're weary and burdened in that, come to Jesus, let him yoke with you, take the burden of Christ along with you. He will carry that load. It's easy and light. Come to him. Stop all this. I got to do this. I got to do that. I got to stop this. I got to stop that. Just come to Christ. Let him give you forgiveness and cleansing and a new heart 
bring a transformation to you. So people receive a good conscience when they are spiritually born again, intentionally washed from their sin and given a new heart and nature. This is how you're born again. It's not by your works. It's by the grace of God, this wonderful gift of Jesus Christ, the way, the ark of salvation. So such salvation does not come by outer works. It comes by an inner transformation of God and individuals. This transaction of God and individuals, though, is expressed publicly by baptism. So baptism is this public expression about God's internal transformation that is taking place by faith in Jesus Christ. So let me state it another way. Baptism saves you. Mm. You heard, heard a Baptist preacher say that? Are we in the church of Christ? What are we into here? I'm using the words of Peter, but, but we need to understand them in the fullness, right? Because you could, you could get off and left field pretty easy on this thing. Baptism saves you, not the outward ceremony of baptism, but the inner spiritual reality of being immersed with Christ that is publicly demonstrated by baptism. It's this great working of Christ that is publicly demonstrated. Wayne Grudem is a contemporary theologian, explains it well when he writes this. When God gives a sinner a clear conscience, that person has been assured that every sin has been forgiven and that he or she stands in right relationship to God. Man, you can't hear that and not be moved. It is this clear conscience that God gives knowing that we stand before him with every sin cleansed and every aspect of the righteousness of Jesus credited to us. What an amazing God we serve. Overwhelming grace. To be baptized rightly is to make an appeal to God. God, please, as I enter the baptism, will you cleanse me internally? I'm asking you to cleanse my heart, cleanse my heart internally, forgive my sins, and make me right before you. And in this way, it's an appropriate symbol of what God is doing in the Christian's life. And once we understand that, then we get and appreciate this first century appeal of the church. Repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins, for the forgiveness of your sins. We understand it more fully when we see it in those terms. I love baptism. I love the picture that it communicates about our salvation in Jesus Christ. And of course, I have a bird's eye view of everybody who's baptized. I'm right there by them. I'm as close as you can get. I love seeing the shock on their eyes when they go down and I love seeing the exuberance on their face when they come up. I love every aspect of it. I love knowing what has taken place in their life, that they are spiritually transformed because I've already had that conversation with them. And I know as they're going down into that water, they're trusting in Christ alone to save them of their sin and to share his glorious death on that cross. And I know when I raise them up out of that water that it is signifying their faith in Christ to a new life which has been sealed by the Holy Spirit and they walk forever new and changed knowing that they'll stand before Christ in the glorious day of the resurrection and be given a glorified body to be like him. Because they'll see him. I love seeing all of that. 
You see, baptism illustrates the death and the acknowledgement of the judgment of sin and the spiritual reality of being separated from God. It's an amazing grace of Christ Jesus who took their sin upon themselves and died with it there, paying justice's due. And baptism illustrates the glorious resurrection for one who is baptized goes down into that water grave and is raised up from the realm of death into the certainty of new life in Jesus Christ. I love every part of it. I could not get a song out of my, my thinking over the weekend, as I was a teenager, I used to listen to the Imperials. Anybody listen to the Imperials back in time? And they had a song called Watergrave. You remember that song? In my house, there's been a mercy killing. The man I used to be is crucified. And the death of this man was the final way of revealing in the spiritual way to live. I had to die now, if I let that dead man linger in me, I might get a little idle in my way. So I'm going down to the Celebration River and take that dead man down to the water grave. I'm going down to the river. I'm going to be buried alive. I want to show my heavenly father the man I used to be has finally died. And now when I think of where I'm going in terms of where I've been, it makes me glad to know, my Lord, I've been born again. I have a feeling you'll hit up Spotify this afternoon. <laughs> it's the reason why Paul proclaims this life-giving truth in Colossians chapter 3. You have been raised with Christ. Now, I want you to notice that that sentence is in the passive voice. I use this little software to help me in my writing called Grammarly, and it always tries to correct my passive voice. Uh, for some reason, I evidently write and speak in the passive voice way too much. And it wants me to correct it, and I can tell you that it wanted me to correct that sentence as well because it's in the passive voice. But I'm going to tell you that's good theology, you have been raised with Christ. What does passive voice means? It means the subject is being acted upon. You didn't do it yourself. Somebody did it for you. You have been raised with Christ. You didn't raise yourself. You didn't put yourself into that position. God put you in that position. He lovingly called you into it. And he raised you up out of your life of sin you have been raised. The ordinance of baptism is like that. It requires two people. Every now and then, somebody doesn't have a right way of thinking about this and they're nervous about standing in front of you in the baptistry pool. Maybe they go to the beautician once a week and we're about to mess that up. Beauticians aren't open on Sunday afternoon. Maybe that's the problem. Most of the time, it's just that they're nervous to stand before you. And every now and then, somebody will say, Preacher, can I just do this at home? Can I just get in the pool and baptize myself? Let me tell you in certain terms, absolutely not. Nobody baptizes themselves. Baptism requires two people. 
You have to humbly submit yourself to be baptized. Somebody's got to lower you down into that grave of water. And somebody's got to raise you up out of that grave that you might walk in the newness of life by faith in Jesus Christ. It requires two. You got to submit yourself unto baptism. Why? Because it's the subject being acted upon. You don't go in that water by yourself and you certainly don't raise yourself up. You didn't come to a recognition of your rebelliousness against God unless God revealed it to you. You didn't come to an understanding of your need for salvation unless God's judgment was pressed down upon you. You didn't know the truth until truth came to be known by you. And so you come humbly to him and you say, Oh God, in my sin, let me be immersed into Christ on that cross as he's immersed with my sin on that cross. Let me die to sin in this moment of faith. And oh God, would you resurrect me? because I've been trying to resurrect my life to newness all my days and I can't do it. Would you do it for me? Would you resurrect me unto eternal life? Would you resurrect me unto a new nature? Would you give me the new heart that I've longed for? Would you do it? And he says, absolutely I will. It's my gift to you as you step into that water humbly by faith. It's my gift to you. So Jesus is this perfect mediator, isn't he, between God and man in whom we come to that we might die to sin, die to self, be resurrected new in him. Salvation requires that mediator, Jesus Christ. He alone is the ark who can save us from the judgment of God, saving us from the waters of judgment and giving us grace to raise us to new life and no wonder Paul declared in Romans chapter 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We bless him for that. Now, did you notice in today's passage that everybody mentioned by Peter is victorious? Don't let that just slide by. Everybody in this section is victorious. Christ proclaims victory in the spirit realm, proving to be victorious, ascending to heaven to the right hand of God the Father with everything being subject to him. That's, that's victory. I mean, those, those that Peter is writing about in, in that verse, verse 21, those are the most powerful beings that you and I know about. We're talking about angels and, and uh, principalities that come in and out of heavenly realm. They are all subject to Christ. You can't get more victorious than that. And then he also mentions the victory of Noah and his immediate family. They understood God's judgment that was upon the world. And they, by faith, stepped into the ark of salvation that God had provided as a gift of grace and they were the only ones on the planet to walk out of that great judgment event alive. That's pretty victorious. Everybody else is dead. You're alive. But there's a third element. And that's the born again saints. Those who are justified and made new by Jesus Christ to an everlasting life that are given to them so that they might walk in the newness of life and so for those of you who are trusting in Jesus, you are victorious. So perhaps you're reflecting now in your life and you say, you know, Randy, there's not a lot of victory that I'm sensing in my life right now. 
then let me encourage you to the realities that Paul wrote about in Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who have died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So trust Christ to save you. Trust him to save you from the impending judgment that is to come. Believe upon him for eternal life, an eternal and abundant and glorious life. And be baptized for baptism is a watery grave of judgment for which we are immersed in the death of Christ and we emerge victoriously in the newness of life. Trust him. Now would you bow your head please? Just a moment of reflection. For those of you who are saved, oh, bless the Lord for your salvation. What a gift. What a gift. And you are on that ark. The man Christ Jesus himself, gloriously saved. And for those of you who have yet to trust him unto your salvation, you've been working You've been trying to get to a point that you feel like God would be satisfied. Now you've come to recognize there's no satisfying God except through Jesus Christ. So humble yourself. Present yourself to him. Die with him on that cross as he has died for you there. Trust him for his victory over sin, death, and the grave. Live in this new life of grace in the resurrection power. And trust him to help you to walk in newness of life from this day forward and be baptized. So help us, Lord, to respond to your truth as you require and as you bless. In Jesus' name, amen.